0: In February 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. As part of this conference, there was a Statement of Faith Q&A on the motion to amend Article 9 of our EFCA Statement of Faith, which consists of removing the term premillennial and replacing it with glorious. On this episode, Bill Kynes and Greg Strand, members of the Spiritual Heritage Committee, gave an introduction to the session by responding to a few of the commonly asked questions. Bill serves as senior pastor at Cornerstone Church and EFC Church in Annandale, Virginia. Greg serves as executive director of theology and credentialing in the EFCA. This morning, uh, Bill Kynes will come and give a brief uh, introduction to the motion to amend that's before us. uh, And then I will respond to some of the questions. Well, good
1: morning. Uh, It's my task here this morning to introduce uh, what I trust will be a very healthy discussion. Uh, We look forward to interacting with your uh, questions and comments uh, as we consider this topic. Let me be very clear at the outset that this proposal to amend our statement of faith is really a continuation of what we in the EFCA discussed over a decade ago. Let me ask you, who was not here 2007, 2008, during those times of discussion. Okay, there are a few of you. But uh, I think most of you will recall, uh, back in 2007, the Board of Directors circulated several drafts of a new statement of faith that did not include premillennialism as the one required eschatological position in the free church. And in discussions across the country in those days, we found wide support from that change, uh, though also some were opposed And rather than risk losing all the other very helpful changes that were being proposed, the board decided to reinsert premillennialism into the final version of the Statement of Faith that was presented at the 2008 conference for a vote and which was approved by an 86% uh, approval. Uh, I went along with that decision at the time, and I was called upon by the board to defend it before the conference. But it was evident that this issue was not resolved and that it would be picked up again. So over a decade later... We come to this point. Well, as we open this discussion this morning, I want to present the central reason why this amendment is being proposed, and that is this. The insistence in the EFCA that, we, that you must be premillennial is in conflict with our strong value of unity in the gospel in which we major on the majors. And what is central to the gospel and what ought to be central in our statement of faith is that the coming of Christ will be glorious now let me repeat that the insistence in the efca that you must be premillennial is in conflict with our strong value of unity in the gospel in which we major on the majors and what is central to the gospel and what ought to be central in our statement of faith is that the coming of christ will be glorious now let me unpack that just a bit One of the great strengths of the EFCA and one of the things that attracted many of us to it in the first place is our emphasis on the centrality of the gospel. The gospel as it's revealed in the inerrant scriptures. We major on the majors. We come uh, come together around the central doctrines of the faith, the central doctrines that have been held by born-again Bible-believing followers of Christ through the ages. And we agree that issues of secondary importance will not divide us. I think of Arnold T. Olson's book, The Significance of Silence. In that book, Dr. Olson notes that what is unique about the free church statement of faith are the omissions when compared to other creeds. Dr. Olson writes, Once the early free church leaders began to put into writing what was commonly believed among them, They were silent on those doctrines which through the centuries had divided Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. He recognizes that some will not be comfortable with the silence of the EFCA statement on some matters, but he asks, why should believers separate themselves from each other over differences which had existed unresolved for centuries? And so our statement of faith reflects this desire for unity in the fundamental tenets of the gospel. We are silent on those doctrines which through the centuries have divided Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. We are silent except in this one place where we come down on one particular view. And we require that only those who are premillennialists can be full members of our association and, in many cases, of our churches. Many see a significant conflict here. You can be covenantal or dispensational. You can be Calvinist or Arminian. You can be Baptistic or Pado-Baptist. You can be secessionist or charismatic. But you must be premillennial. A number of free church pastors have expressed the tension they feel, which I feel myself every time a new member's class is taught, which I've done probably close to a hundred times. We speak about our statement of faith, affirming the core doctrines of our faith as it relates to the gospel, those tenets held by Orthodox Christians through the centuries. The nature of God is Trinity the supreme authority of the Bible, the dignity and depravity of humanity, the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ, his atoning work, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the nature of the church and the Christian life, the the coming of Christ and the eternal destiny in heaven and hell. All these are central to the gospel until you get to that one word, premillennial, which is on a different level theologically and for many it seems out of place. It's clear that the nature of the millennium is one of those doctrines over which theologians, equally knowledgeable, equally committed to the Bible, equally evangelical, have disagreed through the history of the church. And for many, this is a tension that ought to be addressed. We must either quit saying that we major on the majors, or we must quit requiring premillennialism as the one eschatological position that is allowed among us. And this amendment is designed to resolve that conflict. But let me turn to the other side of this amendment. We believe that the central way, the fundamental way, that the coming of Christ is described in the New Testament is not premillennial. No, it is glorious. We find this description four times in Matthew alone, not to mention the synoptic parallels. In Matthew 16:27, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit also on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew twenty-four thirty. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And Mark adds this one, Mark 8, 38, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And we see this emphasis also in the Apostle Paul. Uh, Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul refers to the day Christ comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And in Titus 2.13, Paul writes, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter, three times he refers to the glory of Christ that is to be revealed. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7, Peter refers to the, the praise, glory, and honor that results when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 4.13, he says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And in First Peter 5, 1 Peter 5.1, Peter writes, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. This theme of suffering and glory, it's fundamental to the gospel. The whole shape of the gospel, it comes together in these themes. Yes, our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the oft-repeated and clear teaching of the scripture. This is fundamental to the gospel. This is what has been central in the teaching of the church and in the church's historic confessions of faith. And this, I would say, is central to what we preach. Well, this is where our hope lies, in the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there were and there are some who have theological objections to broadening our eschatology. They're concerned that abandoning premillennialism as a required position would mean abandoning the inerrancy of the Bible or it would uh, radically alter the interpretive framework, the hermeneutics through which we understand the Bible. Uh, many of you uh, can recall that uh, each of these objections was addressed directly in two theological conferences. In 2006, uh, church historian John Woodbridge, New Testament scholar Grant Osborne, affirms strongly that there is no necessary link between one's millennial position and a commitment to biblical inerrancy. In fact, some of the strongest proponents of inerrancy in Christian history and today have not been premillennialists. Augustine, Calvin, Wesley, Warfield, Packer, and Sproul, to mention a few. The doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture is not necessarily tied to premillennialism. And regarding the issue of hermeneutics, In 2007, we had uh, respected evangelical scholars representing four different eschatological views discuss their interpretive principles. And it was clear that the amillennialists and at least one of the premillennialists were nearly identical in the methods they used in interpreting the Bible. And this is the case simply because within premillennialism, there is a great variety of in which the Old Testament promises to Israel are understood to be fulfilled, whether in Christ, in the church, in the millennium, in the new heavens, and the new earth. This objection that if we eliminate premillennialism, we would dramatically change our hermeneutic might be stronger if we were all traditional dispensationalists in our theology. But that's no longer the case. It may have been in the past. But it's no longer the case. Broadening our views on the millennium would not change the hermeneutical frameworks that are already widely accepted in the EFCA. This amendment is based on the principle that one's position on the millennium should not be a boundary that excludes other Bible-believing evangelical brothers and sisters from full fellowship in our churches And we believe that just as the change in 1977 from an exclusively pre-tribulational view to one that includes mid- and post-tribulationalists has been a healthy and positive change, enriching our movement. So we believe a move to allow godly, evangelical, non-premillennialists to join us, to partner with us in our churches and our efforts to reach the world for Christ would also enrich our movement. If we really do major in the majors as we say we do, we think that our statement of the central matters of the gospel should not be limited to one position on the millennial issue, but instead should focus on what the scripture focuses on, the coming of Christ in glory. So that's the basic rationale for this proposal. Uh, We look forward to further discussion. Let me turn it over to Greg. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Bill. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, You know, we thought now what we would do is respond to a few of the questions uh, that have been raised. Um, uh, Just a couple of uh, uh, thoughts. This is from Millard Erickson. The status of eschatology, that is generally there are two contrasting trends. There's an intensive preoccupation with eschatology, eschatomania. Uh, this falls into one of two responses. It becomes the primary or preeminent focus of all of life, uh, and it makes eschatology the whole of theology. Uh, and the second is another trend is eschatophobia, a fear or aversion uh, to eschatology, or at least the avoidance of discussing it. And Millard Erickson then, then concludes this, somewhere between the two extremes of preoccupation with In avoidance of eschatology, we must take our stance, for eschatology is neither an unimportant and optional topic nor the sole subject of significance and interest to the Christian. It is important to keep in mind the true purpose of eschatology. The eschatological truths in God's word, like the rest of his revelation, are intended to comfort and assure us. So, just sort of reminding us of some of these uh, matters. Uh, I thought it would be helpful. This is going to be put your seatbelt on because it's going to be really quick. I, we just don't have a lot of time. And if there, are, if this raises some questions, uh, then we can talk about some of them in the in the Q and A. What I what I have found out and discovered is you see that there weren't a lot of new faces here that were not here in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. But not everybody remembers everything about 2005 to 2008. And so it's worth our while to spend just a little bit of time looking at some of the history and, and, and some of the other things as well. Here's the broad and general overview, historical overview of eschatology. And it's broad and it's general. And you, you know any one of us could, could dig down and find issues. And, and, but it's just a big, big picture, okay? The first of the fourth centuries... Uh, premillennialism was predominant, and it was Kiliasm. Uh, it was not the premillennial that we would necessarily identify today, but it was Kiliasm, uh, is how they referred to it, and, and amillennialism. Uh, fourth, fourth to the 16th centuries, with, with Augustine, uh, and then subsequent to Augustine, the prevailing eschatological or millennial view was uh, amillennial. Uh, 17th and 18th centuries, the Puritan and Anglo-American uh, became post-millennial. Some do not remember that, that uh, Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. Um, and, and also then premillennial. And then 19th and the 20th centuries, Darby and Dispensational, that became the predominant view or premillennialism of that uh, 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 perspective. And then in the 21st century, it's been predominantly premillennial and amillennial. So that, that's a that's a big picture. It's broad, uh, and we can dig down if you would like uh, uh, during Q and A. But that's just a a big reminder, right? Um, here is the Norwegian Danish Free Church Association. So now we're jumping right into the into the twenty first century, or at least the twentieth century here. Um, and this is the, the the merger between the Norwegians and the Danes. Uh, They had a a statement of faith, and in 1912, during that merger, um, their statement on eschatology was as follows. We believe that Jesus Christ, who ascended into heaven, shall come again in great power and glory. And so all that to say, when we talk about our free church history, we have a history longer than 1950. So this is just just, our history. It's a historical reminder of of our, our position, of what our position's been. In 1947, the Ministerial Association of the Evangelical Free Church of America, that is the Swedish side, remember the the Norwegians and Danes had a statement, that is this one. 1947, the Swedish came together in light of the forthcoming merger and and they adopted a statement of faith in light of the merger in 1950. Prior to that, the uh, Swedes had one article in their statement of faith. It was on the authority uh, of the Bible. That was it. And so in light of the merger, uh, they, they figured it was important for them to put down in writing a, a statement of faith what it would be. And, and what they did is you could tell that they were working not just the Swedes but the merger committee because the articles that were drafted for the Swedes is what the statement of faith became in 1950. This is one of them. Uh, we believe in the personal and premillennial and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and that this blessed hope has a vital bearing in the personal life and service of the believer. And that is our 1950 statement of faith. There are some, some key dates uh, post-1950 that I think, again, are helpful for us to understand. So what does that mean? What did it mean uh, you know, to affirm per, per, premillennial, premillennial and imminent? And here are some dates that I think become important, at least to factor in when we consider our history. In June of 1957, Arnold T. Olson, president of the EFCA, you can see his dates, he approved Stan Conrad as an EFCA ordained missionary to Japan while affirming a post tribulational view. That would have been historic premillennial, 1957, Arnold Olson. In December of 1977, a uh, decision by the Committee on Ministerial Standing—that is now known as the Board of Ministerial Standing. So there's uh, it's same board, but but it was known then as the Committee on Ministerial Standing, and it was under Tom Tom McDill, who was president of the EFCA uh, 1976 to 1990, to allow those who embrace either mid or post tribulational positions to be credentialed in the EFCA. So it wasn't just pre-tribulational; it was it was It was open on the tribulational question. And when you became open on the tribulational question, it then raised other issues regarding hermeneutics, putting the Bible together. And in June of 1985, the EFCA General Conference approved Doug Moo and D.A. Carson for tenure at TEDS while affirming an historic premillennial post-tribulational view. Now, some of you might remember in 1981, who was there in 1981 at the Midwinter Ministerial? Anyone? Anyone? Uh, here, It was on the tribulation, and Paul Feinberg uh, affirmed the pre-tribulational view, and Gleason Archer, you remember the view, mid-trib, and Doug Moo was the post-trib view, remember that? 1981. 1984, Zondervan picked that up, and it became the first of the multiple or, or various views of the Counterpoint series. 1984. Uh, and, and, and so it wasn't as if this was... Uh, surprising, shocking, and it was discussed at the conference, do we know the decision we're making, we knew what it might mean, and this was a conference decision in 1985. Key dates that I think are important for us to, to bear in mind. Some of you might remember, um, most of you at least uh, indicated when Bill asked the question, uh, that you remember the draft revisions. This is what the draft revisions stated, uh, three draft revisions, before our final document that was approved in 2008. But for history, it's it's helpful to know. Uh, these, uh, this was with the headings you might remember. God's gospel will be brought to fulfillment by the Lord himself at the end of the age. And the statement was, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his only with his holy angels, when he will bring his kingdom to fulfillment and exercise his role as judge of all. This coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Now you'll recognize much of it in our present statement of faith, 2008 statement of faith. There are some phrases that are missing as well. Uh, The heading is one thing that's missing. It's it's now just Jesus' return uh, and some other uh, things as well. This, then, is our statement of faith, uh, approved uh, 86% in 2008. We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial is our present, uh, change to glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So that's, that's the history that I think is helpful and important to know. Now, what about hermeneutics? A couple of uh, uh, thoughts, comments, responses on hermeneutics. Uh, Again, put your seatbelts on. This is just a brief reminder of of millennialism and and premillennialism and and some of the things of how how we put the Bible together, how Christians have put the Bible together. So when we talk about millennialism, uh, there is amillennialism or inaugurated millennialism, and I'm not going to go through each of these, um, but just to remember, these are the various views, positions that are out there. There's postmillennialism and there's premillennialism. Underneath premillennialism is dispensationalism or pre-tribulational premillennialism. There's historic premillennialism and there is progressive dispensationalism. Progressive dispensationalism became, came into being in the 90s, 1990s. Uh, people like Daryl Bach and Craig Blazing and others. Uh, by the way, just notice this. Please notice this. They're listed alphabetically. <laughs> Don't go anywhere else with that than they're listed alphabetically. Okay? Same thing here. Alphabetical. Except the last one because it's a little bit odd. This is, okay, eschatology regarding Revelation. Some interpretive options. So a futurist applies, in other words, the book of Revelation applies to future end-time events that occur directly prior to Christ's return. Or a historicist is the blueprint of the entire span of church history. Or the idealist who affirms that that revelation refers to the spiritual realities that reoccur throughout history until the final consummation. Or a preterist, events have already taken place. Now, you need to know that a hyper-preterist would say that the Lord Jesus Christ has returned. There won't be another return. Hyperpreterism is, is problematic. Uh, just so you know. Um, and then, of course, there's the eclectic, an eclectic approach that, that uh, takes some things, some truths from, from various uh, positions. Theological lenses. What are some of the theological lenses, dear friends, by which we look at the Bible? One Bible, two Testaments. Well, here are some. You think of, even in the early church, the Old and or New Covenant. How, how, how do we think about that? And, and how do we understand that? And, and, and is it true that, the, the, uh, the, that we need to become as Christians unhitched from the Old Testament? Or law and or versus gospel. How, how do we understand that? that? That was what drove the Reformation. And how do we understand the covenantal, covenantal? A covenantal theology or or dispensational or classic traditional, uh, just to identify it differently than the progressive dispensational uh, uh, theology. Or or the progressive covenantal, that's been the last 10 years. People like uh, Steve Wellam, a graduate of TEDS, PhD from TEDS, and and, uh, Peter Gentry uh, and others. So progressive covenantal. So these are things, when we begin to say... So let's give an exegesis of a text. Friends, none of us are unbiased. Let's just be honest. So let's just acknowledge some of our presuppositions, hermeneutical presuppositions with which we approach the text. And that, that's, what I'm, that's what we're acknowledging here, right? Now this one, in, in brief, this is sort of, I think, helpful um, because I think at times people conclude there's just one single understanding of what premillennialism is. And here's a, just a quick, again, you, we can pick it apart, but it's, it's quick and it's, it's, it, I think, might be helpful. So a dispensational premillennialist over against a historic premillennialist, here are seven slightly differences in, in understanding. That is, two comings of Christ over one coming of Christ. A pre-tribulational rapture and a post-tribulational rapture. And, a, and the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the millennium. Whereas the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, in the church, in the millennium, in the new heavens, in the new earth. There's an emphasis on the literal interpretation of the Bible, focusing on author intent. Whereas there's an emphasis on faithful to author's intent. That is literal with literary sensitivity and canonical context. There's a focus on discontinuity between the Testaments, Israel, and the Church, whereas there is focus on nuanced continuity or unity between the Testaments and, 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 and Israel and the Church. There's an emphasis on the, uh, the millennium is at the end of the present age, whereas there's an emphasis that the millennium is the beginning of the new age, the age to come, and in, uh, there's a biblical considered a biblical theological major and a biblical theological minor. That describes some of the discussion that we're having. Uh, and then, just to just to go through the Bible, the hermeneutics, and a statement of faith. Here are some things to remember of how we've approached this. Undergirding our understanding and interpretation of the Bible is that that this is God's word spoken by the Trinitarian God. That that's why it, it happens in one. It's not that that, that one becomes more important than two, or two less significant than one. They're all in a statement of faith, and 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 it, it's not a. Elevating, devaluing, it, it's, it, we've, it, we begin with God. And this truth is fundamental to everything we believe about the Bible and why our statement of faith begins with God, Article 1. We affirm that the Bible is without error, God's complete revelation and the ultimate authority, Article 2. The Bible is the ultimate authority which determines everything we believe, and this includes our hermeneutic. Hermeneutics does not sit on top of Scripture and forced a meaning through a specific interpretive grid. Rather, hermeneutic sits underneath Scripture and is governed and reformed by it, the ultimate authority. D, there's no single hermeneutic in the EFCA. Those who affirm a dispensational premillennial understanding of the Scriptures and those who affirm an historic premillennial view of the Scriptures, both views are acceptable in the EFCA, follow different hermeneutical principles, but both are accepted even now. But importantly, they both affirm the Bible is without error and the ultimate authority. And, and it, I would say this, if, there's, if there is any single line explaining our hermeneutic in our statement of faith, it is the expression, Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah. The historic premillennial view shares many of the hermeneutical principles of the amillennial position. One of the major differences being the interpretation of Revelation 20. That's why there are differences. There is no single understanding at the moment of the fulfillment of the promises or prophecies given to Israel, what the coming of Christ entails in the fulfillment of these prophecies, how to understand Israel and the church, the land, among other issues. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't, there aren't positions. It doesn't mean that there aren't ways in which people understand this. The, the, the point is that, that, this, that we're making is that there isn't an absolute singular view that's mandated. That, that's what we're saying. And that exists now. Broadening our view uh, of eschatology is not a standalone doctrine that will open Pandora's box since we also must affirm the rest of the doctrines espoused in our statement of faith, which ensure our orthodox evangelical theology all in submission to the Bible as the ultimate authority. And many of the ardent defenders of inerrancy through the years have been premillennialists. But ardent defenders of inerrancy are not limited to premillennialists since some of this you heard earlier. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Hodge, Warfield, Machen. So here, it is important to remember that anyone who affirms the FCA statement of faith, I'm just emphasizing this again, on eschatology must also affirm the complete statement of faith without mental reservation. If this, if this amendment is adopted, one would have to affirm not only Article 9 on Christ's return, but the whole of the statement of faith. It would also be required to go back to the beginning and affirm the doctrine of the Trinity and God's purpose in creation and redemption, article 1, the inerrant and authoritative scriptures, article 2, God's creation of Adam and Eve in his image, who sinned and and are under God's wrath, and that it is only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ that we can be rescued, reconciled, and renewed, article 3, and because of denying the Lord Jesus Christ, the unbeliever experiences condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, article 10. No theological liberal would affirm those biblical truths in our statement of faith. And if they did affirm these statements, they are an evangelical. Likely, not a theological liberal. In fact, friends, you need to know that in the present day, some evangelicals do not affirm these truths. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.